0: This is the Grazia Life Advice podcast. Welcome back. I'm Rhiannon Evans and we are all set to hear from another brilliant woman, this time a renowned American author of books such as Prep and American Wife.
1: Hello, I'm Curtis Sittenfeld. I am the author of several novels including uh, the novel Rodham and I'm today's guest on Grazia's Life Advice podcast.
0: In her book Rodham, Curtis imagines the life of Hillary Clinton and the US as a whole if she had never married Bill.
1: It was a way of addressing I think some of my own emotional confusion and some of my beliefs about our culture's hang-ups about gender and so that that had its satisfactions of course.
0: Coming up how Curtis responds to social media trolling and other unpleasantness.
1: I don't I don't respond, mm. I don't block them, I don't, like, I don't do anything. Yeah. And 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 I hope that they imagine I didn't even see it.
0: <laughs> also, you'll have to stay with us right till the end of the chat to find out what this is all about. One of my pieces of advice is anonymously slip
1: <laughs> nasty mail under people's doors.
0: It's another great chat, so let's get into it. Here is Curtis Sittenfeld. Hi Curtis, how are you today?
1: I'm doing well, thank you.
0: Super excited to speak to you. I absolutely love Rodham and it's just coming out in paperback here in the UK, which makes it even easier to pick up. Um, (laughs) Tell people about Rodham and what it is about. So um, it's a sort of alternate history
1: of the life of the person we know as as Hillary Clinton. Although in my version, she's Hillary Rodham, because unlike in in real life, she never marries Bill Clinton. So they meet they meet in law school in the early nineteen seventies. They fall in love. In real life, he proposed twice and she said no and then he proposed a third time and she said yes but in my version she says no a third time and she goes on to lead her own life and you know sort of blaze her own trail
0: yeah i mean the book is so interesting and and for me it was kind of pulling apart you know why why didn't we love hillary the way we should have loved her you know was it bill is it that she's a woman? Is there something fundamental, un- fundamentally unelectable about women? And I just wondered, why did you, what made you sit down and think, yeah, this is a great idea. This is what I'm <laughs> going to do next.
1: <laughs> um So I think there were a few forces that combined to make me think this was a great idea. One was, there was an American magazine that commissioned me to write a short story from Hillary's perspective in early 2016, well before the election. So I did that I had that experience of you know, sort of thinking from the point of view of like the former Secretary of State and, you know, a powerful woman in a pantsuit. Um, and then after the election, I was devastated. I certainly yeah. had been a Hillary supporter. And w- I, I would think about the fact that school children, American school children who knew Hillary was running in many cases, literally didn't know Bill Clinton existed, let alone that he had been president, let alone that he'd been, you know, a president that ha- that sort of has various kinds of baggage associated with him. So I thought to myself, what if adults who were voting also mm-hmm. didn't see Hillary and Bill as so intertwined?
0: I mean, and obviously, you know, you wish Hillary had won. In that sense, you wish it being reality. But do you think it would be impossible or even practicable to you know, extricate Hillary from Bill during that campaign, really and truthfully?
1: I mean, so I think that there are probably about 20 different factors where if any one of them had been different, I think it would have been Hillary in the White House instead of Donald Trump. So it's not as if I, I think that her marriage was some singular mistake. And in fact, you know, I think that if it were the mid 70s and I were Hillary and Bill wanted to marry mm-hmm. me, I, I would say yes. Like it's not difficult for me to understand why she did marry him. And there is a sort of sliding doors element to the book of just thinking, you know, mm-hmm. if, if one thing had been different, what else would have been different? And the, the book is a strange combination of being, I think. Very literal about, you know, what would it be like if they hadn't married? And then also being this total experimental fantasy. And and it's not even, I mean, it's written realistically, but it's not necessarily what I think would have happened if they hadn't married.
0: Sure. And for you, you know, people have called it kind of a liberal or a feminist kind of fairy tale, a different different alternate universe. I mean, was it enjoyable for you to write and explore where her life could have gone and where in turn society could have gone, really?
1: Yes. So it's it's funny because I think occasionally someone will say it's a liberal or feminist fairy tale and mean that as an insult. And I think to myself, Thank oh. you. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, <laughs> I'll take that. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was yeah. an interesting because I was writing this during the years that you know Trump was in the White House. There were times yeah. when I was reading, you know, say articles that had been written in the summer of 2016 prior to the election where clearly the assumption was that Hillary mm-hmm. would win, and it was very painful to read those articles, like, it felt like a sort of retroactive exposure therapy. Um, but you know, it, it also was, it was a way of addressing, I think some of my own emotional confusion and some of my, my beliefs about our culture's hangups about gender. And so that, that had its satisfactions of course.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. And if you haven't picked it up, I definitely would recommend going and getting the paperback along with prep. You're one of your books, which is actually one of my favorite books. So I want to tell people to pick that up, too, if they're popping by Thank the bookshop. You. But we are here to hear your best advice. I've had a look at the advice first and it's all great. So let's crack on. Your first piece of advice is that different people are different. I mean, explain to me what that means and, and how and when you use that. So I feel like in some ways this sounds a
1: little bit, I don't know, maybe idiotic or at least self-evident, but I would say that I utter this sentence in my house, often to my children, about, I mean, like a minimum of five times a week. Like it really, it explains almost all human behavior, including like, you know, if you were to say during the pandemic, before there were any vaccines available, you know, why were some people trying to go into restaurants, um, you know, and not wearing masks? Or, you know, why did some people for the Christmas holiday gather together with 28 relatives? I mean, there's, there's more sort of precise um, explanations you could give. But I think that, I think there's, there's something like we sort of I don't know how universal this is, but I think there can be a tendency to think everyone sees the world in the same way and people just make different choices. But I actually think people see the world in fundamentally different ways. You know, people have different goals for themselves. They have different definitions of, you know, like safety or happiness or appropriate behavior. And and so, I mean, again, whether it's like, Why is that person allowed to wear like, you know, shorts where their, you know, butt cheeks hang out and I'm not, (laughs) it's like, well, different, different people are different. Or why does this person, you know, get this enormous allowance Mm -hmm. or, you know, why, why did that person just drive down the street with, with like the engine of their car like deliberately sort of revving as loudly as possible different people are different
0: yeah so very handy in parenting and I imagine like handy as well as an author right because you are going into different people's minds literally with some of your novels
1: yeah no it's true I think I think it's a really important thing to remind myself of as an adult too like it's people just see the world in such different ways people are raised in such different ways there are cultural differences there are gender differences there are class differences there are race differences and I don't I don't think it's inappropriate to acknowledge that I think it's almost at times respectful or necessary mm.
0: yeah absolutely and does you know how do your kids react to that do they eye roll or do they take it in or you know is it helpful
1: both but I think yeah. both, depends on on the day and the moment yeah and I, I I think sometimes they even say like I know you're gonna say different people are different
0: <laughs> that's a good one I can imagine lots of people stealing that one from now on and Help your, yourself <laughs> your second piece of advice you know you've said is is similar and it's that people are not essentially rational is that again something that your your kids are told a lot
1: I do, I do tell my kids that, I mean, I think there's this weird pretense, we're in this weird moment where, especially with technology, it's almost like we can monitor, you know, how many steps we take or how much sleep we get and what the quality of the Mm -hmm. sleep is. And so there's this mutual delusion that we're all working toward being the ideal versions of ourselves. And I, I don't think that's true. Actually, you know, you mentioned my first novel prep. So it came out when I was 29 and I once went to visit a book club of women who, who seemed like, you know, middle-aged women who are probably younger than I am now I'm now 45. And they were asking me about some of the choices that the main character makes and the main character is this teenage girl who goes to a fancy boarding school and she's not from a quote-unquote fancy background. Um, And I thought to myself, like, they say, like, she's kind of negative and she has this amazing amazing educational experience that she kind of doesn't make the most of and throws away. And I remember just, like, looking, and I actually was seated on an ottoman, so I was, like, physically a little lower than these women who were older than I was. And I was thinking, don't you understand – that people it's like uh, one of the defining features of human nature is that we often act against our own best interests mm. and like novels wouldn't exist if that wasn't the case. And like life might not be that interesting if that wasn't the case. like we are not robots and we are not. And so I, I do, I mean in some ways in the last few years in the United States, maybe in Britain too, it seems like it's so abundantly obvious that people are not essentially rational, but I think we we act, like that does seem to be a, an assumption of rationality does sometimes seem to, you know, underlie our interactions.
0: Right. And it's kind of a, a, what is the sentence that gets used over here a lot sometimes? Sometimes it feels like turkeys voting for Christmas or Thanksgiving in your case. Sometimes, you know, you're just looking and you're thinking from your own personal mindset, which I guess goes back to your first piece of advice. Why has someone done this? But of course, like we've all had moments where, you know, ration goes out of the um, goes out of the window. Have you had moments where, like that where you've thought, yeah, I know this isn't for the best, but this is how I'm acting?
1: Oh, of course. I mean, probably like multiple times a day. Yeah. I mean, and even even sometimes like if I'm sitting in front of, say, Twitter, and I've been sitting in front of Twitter for 35 minutes and I can like almost feel myself becoming more miserable. And then I st- <laughs> I sit there for another hour. I mean, like, yeah, sure.
0: Yeah, true. Social media in general could be a case in point for that piece of advice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're quite yes. active on um, social media as well. How do you find that?
1: Oh, I don't know. I don't even know what quite active is. I mean, I feel like um, sort of dislike Twitter I mean, I might say 50% and love it 50% at mm-hmm. this point. I mean, it might, I, I actually might dislike it 55% at this point. But, <laughs> um, you know, on, on, in some ways, it's like this amazing way to connect with other people who sometimes, you know, they are people I, uh, like other writers I admire, sometimes mm-hmm. they're total strangers who turn out to be hilariously funny. You know, especially during the pandemic, it, it, it can feel like a kind of a form of community. And then, as I'm far from the first person to notice, it can also feel like, you know, just a, a toxic waste site where it's like the worst, you know, every, all these cranky people and sort of shouting over yeah. each other.
0: And do you step away if you have your editor on the, on the emails saying, Curtis, we need the next chapter, for instance? Like, do you, do you totally close it off sometimes or will you always dip in?
1: So, in theory, <laughs> I don't look at, <laughs> Twitter until after lunch which is to say I've only retweeted one tweet so far today. <laughs> I mean, I I don't have it on my phone. Yes. But you know, it's it's still pretty easy for me to find it. <laughs> um but yeah, I mean I I'm not in such frequent contact with my editors that they're sort of monitoring my my daily output, sure. but I I try to be my own taskmaster.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And could you tell me your third piece of advice, please?
1: Yes. Well, so I actually, I wish I had the exact wording on this. Um, So a friend of mine named Antoine Wilson wrote a book, a novel called Panorama City. And I've told Antoine this. His his character at one point in passing mentions if you if you don't know what course of action to take, just wait. Like the answer will often become clear to you. And I, I mean, I read this. I don't know how many years ago, probably like eight years ago or something. And I I felt like it was kind of profound because you know you don't always have the luxury of of time when you're making a decision, but when you feel confusion things do often sort themselves out mm. or become much more obvious after a few days or weeks pass and and like you don't I think I think sometimes we put pressure on ourselves to make a decision or find resolution before it's necessary
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you I mean, this is one of two pieces of advice you've taken from from novels. I mean, do you find a lot of, you know, learnings and ways of working things out in life through literature yourself?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Although it's funny because occasionally also on social media, I'll see like someone will have taken a line from one of my books and it might even be a line of dialogue and put it over like a pretty background like a lake <laughs> and it'll be about like some line about self-acceptance and and then it'll say like you know Curtis Sittenfeld and I'll think like I don't know if I believe that like the character <laughs> said that but yeah. I don't know but then I do the exact same thing where I take I take stuff totally out of context and apply it to my own life from other people like it's not I mean there is there's a difference between a self-help book and a novel but like I'm I, I make that sort of blurring between them myself.
0: Yeah I think like fiction has always been a way for us to figure things out in the world hasn't it in the sense that you know you the way you talked about Rodham as well it's like it seems to make sense sometimes that seeing other characters play out things that you really should know deep down will help you know it's always easier to give advice to other people and Probably easier to see it spelled out to other characters, probably.
1: Oh, yeah. And, and have you ever heard, I think that, you know, when children play pretend games, like house or whatever, it's it's almost like they're practicing yeah. being humans. And and I think that that that's, can be what fiction is, too, where it's like doing something with your brain. I don't know, maybe like improv is like this, which I've never participated in, but um, or being in a play is like this, where... It has a very close relationship to reality, but it's not reality.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And can I ask, you know, obviously the quotes thing is one thing, but how do you feel when you're an author, you're sat in a room on your own a lot of the time, do you have to block out that that knowledge that millions of people are going to read your words, put weight into your words, put their own interpretation into your words, or or is it something that enhances your writing experience?
1: I think I block it out mm. in the act of writing and and that's actually part of why I can derail a day of writing by looking at Twitter because it's almost that I'm too I'm too aware of the world and other people and their fierce opinions I mean, a lot of my my fiction is inspired by by things that happen in the world, but it's like the act of writing it is kind of like going deep inside myself. Mm. I mean, then there's like the editing process. There's the promotion process. You know, there's a lag between when I finished the book and when the book is published and it becomes, you know, sort of this public object. And it's a little, it would be a little disingenuous for me to think no like I'm the only audience or not to anticipate that other people will read it yeah. and have opinions but weirdly I can't I can't ever really know what other people's opinions will be so trying to write an anticipation of them doesn't work for me
0: have you been in situations where reviews or opinions have come back and they've genuinely surprised you and you know things you would not anticipated people thinking
1: Yeah, definitely, actually. And (laughs) different people are different. (laughs) You know, like, seriously, like, like somebody, you know, I, um, one of my books was this modern retelling of Pride and Prejudice. And I Mm -hmm. think some people just felt like, you know, oh, it's so it's funny, and it's a romp, and it's irreverent. And then other people felt like this is so distasteful. This is so disrespectful to Jane Austen. And, And a part of me would think, isn't it obvious that I adore Jane Austen and that I, you know, completely respect her, but really different people are different, different, you know, people have different senses of humor, you know, different senses of decorum, different impulses in, in terms of what they would or wouldn't write themselves. And so I'm, I'm, can be surprised by a particular reaction to my book, But in a general sense, I'm not surprised that there are not
0: uniform reactions. Yeah, absolutely. We'll be back with more from Curtis after this. We're still here with Curtis Sittenfeld. And I'd love you to explain or tell us what your fourth piece of advice is.
1: So this is from a Jeffrey Eugenides short story in the collection Fresh Complaint. Mm. Pay no attention to the terrors that visit you in the night. The psyche is at its lowest ebb then, unable to defend itself. The desolation that envelops you feels like truth, but isn't. It's just mental fatigue masquerading as insight. Um, And it's actually uh, like a therapist. It's sort of quoting a therapist in the story who says this, like, you know, this character saw a therapist for years and the, the therapist gave this piece of advice. And I just thought it was I I read this again a few years ago and I thought like oh my god that's so well put
0: yeah I have to say when I read that when you sent it over I was thinking I might frame that and put that by the side (laughs) of my bed because I am a middle of the night decision maker you know decisions have been made in the middle of the night while I've sat up and worried Are, are you like that too
1: I, certainly, there are times, including large chunks of time, where I'm awake during the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, I never do anything. Like, I. Don't turn on the light. I don't look at my phone. I don't read, which I'm not. It's not like a, I don't judge people who do. You know, I think everyone kind of different people are different. Everyone <laughs> manages this in their own way. Um, it's almost as if my my nights have at times not every night, but as if my nights have like a headline where it's like, this is the focus or this is the yeah. obsession for the night. And then sometimes I wake up and I think like, who cares? Or it's like I might have spent hours obsessing over something. And I wake up and I literally never give it any thought again. It was like something, you know, like I feel wronged by another person or I, I feel like I, I made a huge mistake or I feel like I, I must make this big change. And, and I do think that your your mind is sort of, I don't know, for lack of a better way to say it, like playing, playing games or yeah. you know, playing tricks on itself.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I love that thing of its mental fatigue masquerading as as insight. And I think, especially in the last year, like hasn't there been a lot to worry about? And actually, specifically, I think in the last year, a lot of people have just been worrying and feeling tired. And I definitely think some people could do with following that piece of advice. (laughs) So thank you for bringing that one to our attention. Now you thank must... you,
1: thank you, Jeffrey Eugenity. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah, so I, I have to attribute that to him.
0: Yeah, I mean that's a great collection as well. That's I recommend that. You must get absolutely constantly asked for writing advice. So thank you for sharing this. Your fifth piece of advice. Can you can you explain what it is?
1: Yeah, so this is from um, a grad school professor of mine named Chris Offit, and I I finished grad school almost you know twenty years ago to the day. So. Um, He would say when you're writing fiction, so whether it's a novel or a short story, look at the last sentence you wrote the last time you wrote, whether that was yesterday or two weeks ago, and, and go forward from there. Like, don't go back to the beginning. So if you're if you're writing a short story and you're on page 20, you know, look at. The bottom of, of page 20 and then go on to page 21. Don't go to page one and yeah. read the entire thing and poke at it and massage it. And because essentially you'll just slow down your own progress to an incredible degree.
0: Yeah. And have you over the years refined the way that you write and changed your methods? Or did you have you always kind of written in a similar way? I think I actually have changed my methods and it's not, it feels
1: effective but not I'm not entirely like at peace with it so I now write an incredibly messy first draft where it'll be almost like half sentences or like chunks where I'm I put in brackets like and then you know this this will go here or like fix this idea or something like that or like you know I need to do research and it's almost like just trying to get the overall structure in place but no human being besides me could could read it and perceive it as coherent and then i go through and like make the sentences all make sense and then i try to make the sentences as you know do things even better than merely make sense and so i think i actually i mean there's variations on this advice which is sort of like you know write messy first drafts or and then improve and revise. And and this is a very nitty gritty kind of piece of advice along those lines.
0: Yeah. Uh, You know, authors are often really, really relied upon by new writers to provide them with advice and mentoring. Is that something you're comfortable to do? Or do you have to kind of close the door sometimes and say, I need to get on with writing?
1: Well, it depends on the context. I mean, I, I also, again, I'm. this will sound like a joke, but <laughs> I mean it sincerely, like different people are different. So mm-hmm. I would I would yeah. never assume that what works for me will clearly work for another person. Mm-hmm. And, and if, if somebody says to me, well, I, what I really like to do is go back to page one, go back to my first sentence every day. And it just, you know, I, I really build up my momentum. I mean, if that works for you, go for it. Mm-hmm. If people ask me for advice i I tend to give it, but i I think you know plenty plenty of people can kind of find their their own way without input from me,
0: yeah, I'm sure you must get questioned all the time though is it because people come to you via social media a lot and have expectations of you know questions being answered and things like that
1: sometimes i mean not not like to a degree that feels burdensome and mm-hmm. honestly. If it does feel burdensome, I would say I ignore it. I, You know, this makes me think there's a piece of advice I didn't put on here that I should have. That I didn't, I didn't like, you know, think to mention before today, but well, there, there's two things I've done that I think, cause I'm a very like, you know, ambivalent person. And I'll think those were like, no question. Those were some of the best decisions I have, I've ever made. One was taking Twitter off my phone mm-hmm. and two was I joined Twitter in 2013 and basically, I don't think I've ever engaged with a person who's said something kind of nasty or confrontational to me. Like if someone disagrees with me in a respectful way, I might respond. But in general, like, you know, I feel like I should knock on wood. I haven't gotten like an enormous quantity of of people sort of harassing me, but when someone harasses me, if, if someone says something kind of harassing, like I don't I don't respond, mm. I don't block them, I don't like I don't do anything. Yeah. And, and and I hope that they imagine I didn't even see it. <laughs> but but yeah, I just I feel like you can I mean you could spend a lot of time and energy dignifying a person who would reach out to a stranger and insult yeah. them about any about their their writing their personality etc.
0: Yeah, that's a big issue isn't it people adding authors into bad reviews. I mean, why bother? Just uh just leave it leave it where you want to leave it. Your sixth piece of advice actually feeds into this. It's don't compare your backstage to someone else's front stage. And and is that about kind of perceptions on social media and things?
1: Yeah. I mean, so I think I think that I feel very conscious I mean, I, I think that 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 this podcast is that there's no visual component of it, but you can you can see what I'm wearing. You know, like my hair is kind of messy, and I'm I'm like basically wearing like exercise clothes. Um, like, I think that I could present a version of my life on social media, and and like I sometimes do this. Where it's like I'm interacting with this, you know, other writer who's like actually, you know, way more successful and famous than I am, or um, like I'm, you know, traveling or doing this like sort of somewhat glamorous thing, and 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 I know that it would not like my day to day life is not glamorous. Mm-hmm. In some ways, as a writer, I'm very conscious of how you can manipulate imagery or manipulate narratives. Yes. And then you can think like, you know, like, like people kind of, I think this is a sexist, but frequent question that, that professional women get, like, how do you balance, you know, your, your job and motherhood? And it's like, who's to say that any of those women we're asking that of are balancing it successfully? Or like, what is balance? Or like, it's just, I mean, we're seeing, We see a very, whether it's social media or real life, you know, like if I do an event on stage with somebody, you're seeing a very public, limited version of that person and of me. It's not necessarily fake, but it's very incomplete.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's just always worth just kind of reminding yourself of that sometimes uh, when you're scrolling through things. Now, we like to always end on some bad advice because it can often be illuminating. So t- t- tell me what you picked for this.
1: So I have to say, I actually struggle. Like, I feel like the world is full of bad advice and yet I struggled <laughs> to come up with something. I-, I think this is definitely true during a pandemic. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I think this is true under normal circumstances, but I think people say you have to do what's right for you or you have to do what's right for your family. Mm-hmm. I think that that, that can be a justification for making selfish choices, right? Yeah, like, I mean, it just it felt like, you know, during the pandemic, in the United States, when, you know, before vaccines were widely available, it felt like there's a difference between, you know, it's like, if you have a job, and you're expected to be there, that's one thing. But if you're like yeah our my my family just socializes with these eight other families because it feels good to us it's it's important for our mental health to have a social outlet and like that is a choice mm-hmm. it might indeed be what's best for your family but if every family mm-hmm. made that choice then you know then the pandemic might last more than a year <laughs> imagine that
0: <laughs> Yeah absolutely and the the pandemic was strange for a million reasons but I think one of the reasons was you know we haven't had a world war for a long time that sense of kind of national community hasn't existed in a lot of places for a long time and then all of a sudden we acted we actually needed to act to help other people didn't we and and to protect each other and I think it was quite difficult to maybe cling that back from um, society in some ways yeah yeah
1: yeah no I, I I actually I asked um one of my sisters I said like who's who's I mean she's a photographer and I was like could you make like almost like how hard would it be to make almost like a greeting card that said like I used to like and respect you until there was a global pandemic and my, my sister was like who would you give that to like and I said no I, just, I don't think I'm I'm really gonna send it to anyone I just want to know how hard it would be to make it and I think I yeah. think she was sort of like mm, that's not as funny as you think it is Curtis
0: but I think something a lot of people will be relating to and thinking yeah one of those would be handy yeah, for me you right could now. you could oh, just no. you could anonymously slip it no I'm just I, I yeah
1: that I don't I, I don't want to say I don't want it to be like one of my pieces of advice is anonymously slip <laughs> nasty mail under people's doors like, yeah, I highly do that. recommend that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I do not recommend that Thank- thank you Curtis before you leave I have to ask you what are you working on at the moment what's next for you
1: oh my goodness well I'm actually I have been working on another novel which is you know it's so it's so new that I sort of I'm still figuring out what it's about and then I've also been working on a short story I mean not literally simultaneously but I've been doing both of those things
0: recently fantastic we'll we'll sit and wait with bated breath thank you so much for joining us on Grazia Life Advice today thank you Curtis Sittenfeld, one of my favourite writers. I hope you enjoyed that chat as much as I did. Rodham is out in paperback now. Thanks as ever for being with us for another episode. If you've enjoyed it, please do rate and review. Grazia Life Advice in your podcast player. It really helps us out and helps us reach new people. See you next time.